It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, it's Wednesday, which means, of course, Armchair Politics is coming up in about an hour for two hours of commentary and analysis about the headlines from the worlds of um, politics and uh, current events from local, state, and national perspectives with our roundtable regulars, uh, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. They'll be joined this week in the third chair uh, by uh, Jan Worth Nelson from East Village Magazine. But first, since this is the first Wednesday of the month, we're uh, joined by economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint, who joins me now by phone. Good morning, Chris. Welcome. Hey, morning, Tom. Great to be here. Um, you know, I, I, there are a number of things that, that we should, uh, talk about this morning to, to play catch up with, uh, the economy and what's going on. Um, but, but first I want to ask you about cryptocurrency, um, because last week on Armchair Politics, we were talking about a, a comment, a statement that had been released by, um, uh, Michigan's minority Senate leader and, and a state senator from this area, Jim Ananick, saying that he thought Michigan should take the lead on um, uh, supporting the, the idea of cryptocurrency. And I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that, but we, we talked about whether or not that was the kind of talk that um, was more appropriate for a lame duck senator than somebody that was about to run for re-election um but at the same time it was suggested that it was maybe a bad time to be talking like that because cryptocurrency took a big dip here just recently what's going on with that and how can made up money take a dive yeah, so lots going on there. Um, first of all, I might be the wrong person to ask about cryptocurrency, only because I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011, and I thought, well, this is not going to amount to much. It just seems like a complicated <laughs> way to make electronic payments. Why not just use a credit card? Well, I was wrong about that. Um, but I'm not sure what the senator meant. Uh, maybe for guidance, you could look at El Salvador, of all places, because El Salvador denoted Bitcoin as legal tender just like the U.S. dollar is legal tender, actually over there too. Um, El Salvador had a problem with inflation, uh, probably I think 20 years ago or so. 
So they said, well, since we can't be trusted to control the money supply, we'll just use dollars since we don't control that to keep prices stable. And then recently the president expanded it and said, well, we'll use dollars and bitcoins. So perhaps that's what the senator means, that Michigan should start thinking about bitcoin as you know, legal tender, just like the U.S. dollar is in Michigan. I don't know if an individual state could do that. Legal tender, I don't think, means a whole lot other than you could pay your taxes in it. So perhaps the thought is maybe Michigan should accept Bitcoin for payment of taxes. But the problem with Bitcoin is, like you mentioned, the price is just so volatile that earlier this year, the price is close to $60,000 of Bitcoin, and the price fell by about half. So I think it bottomed out at about $30,000 per Bitcoin, and it's rebounded somewhat. So I think it's probably closer to $40,000 per Bitcoin right now. But when the price of an asset is just so volatile like that, where it could lose tens of thousands of dollars per day, people become reluctant to accept it in, in trade. Because if you're selling a good or a service, you might accept a Bitcoin in payment, and then tomorrow the Bitcoin loses $10,000 of its value. Well, that's not super appealing. Or if you own Bitcoin, you can think about spending the Bitcoin for a good or service, but you might be reluctant to do that because tomorrow the price of a Bitcoin could rise by $10,000. And all of a sudden, you parted with an asset whose price went up substantially. So I think the government could do whatever it wants in terms of accepting Bitcoin, not accepting Bitcoin. But the price volatility makes it very difficult for Bitcoin to replace the U.S. dollar in terms of transactions of goods and services, payment of taxes, and so forth. But what's determining the the value of Bitcoin? Um, just people buying and selling it. I think it's mostly just speculation. That it's like any other asset. Um, I guess it's it's kind of like stocks in the sense that it's people buying and selling stocks on the stock market that determines the price of stocks. So if people kind of whip themselves up into a frenzy and think a stock is going to get hot, the price of the stock will skyrocket following that increase in demand for the stock, kind of like we saw with GameStop about a year ago um, in 2020 or 2021. Uh, but I guess the difference with the stock and Bitcoin is the stock has like an underlying fundamental value in the sense that if you own a stock, it's going to pay a dividend every year with the corporation reports or, profits. Or, you know, in the most simplest of... Uh analysis you own a very small piece of that particular company right that's right and that's what pays you the dividend and you know, if you that company were to just completely go under theoretically you would you know recover a little piece of you know that company that you own if it were to be <clears throat> liquidated or something yeah that's... you know there's there's some value there and the tr the problem i'm having is understanding what bitcoin can be cashed in for yeah no i think that's a good point i thought the exact same thing um if you own a share of stock for a corporation you're right you own a small sliver of that corporation's capital or the factories, machines, equipment, and so forth. So you're entitled to a cut of the profits. Um, you know, that's the dividend. If the corporation liquidates, if you own stock, you're probably not going to get anything because the bondholders get paid out before you. But just because you're entitled to that profit, that slice of the profit, you know, that gives the stock some fundamental value. But you're right, Bitcoin doesn't pay out anything. So you can make the argument, I think, that, well, the fundamental 
value of Bitcoin is pretty close to zero. You know, and, and then that, gonna... that begs the question that ever since uh, the, the dollar was taken off the gold standard, um, it's made up value now. Yeah, that's right. I think that's what the Bitcoin enthusiasts, enthusiasts would retort with to say, well, if Bitcoin is just fiat money, well, then <coughs> so is the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is not backed by gold, silver, any sort of precious metal. But if you think about what gives the U.S. dollar value, it's a couple of things. First, the Federal, Res Federal Reserve limits the supply of dollars. So if something is limited in supply, that helps give it value. Well, you could argue the Federal Reserve hasn't done such a great job about that for the last 20 months. But if the Federal Reserve would limit the supply of dollars, that keeps the supply fixed, which would make each individual dollar fairly scarce, which would help give it value. Uh, but what really gives the dollar value is that coupled with people's confidence that, well, if I accept the dollar, someone in the future will accept it for me. So sure, the dollar's not backed by gold, but I'll take 20 bucks when I sell something because I'm pretty sure that someone's going to take that $20 from me. And I'm pretty sure someone will take that $20 from me because the Federal Reserve is just going to increase the supply of $20 bills to an unlimited amount. So I think people think that with the increase in the money supply we've seen over the last 20 months, perhaps confidence in the dollar is going to start to break down. And as a result, people will be looking for a different asset to use for transactions. And thus, if Bitcoin emerges as the asset people use, that will cause the price of Bitcoin to skyrocket. So that might be driving some of the demand for Bitcoin, just that speculation that the U.S. dollar is on its way out. And whatever steps into replaces is going to be worth a whole lot. And if that's Bitcoin... Well, now you're getting in at the ground level to look to reap some profits. You know, um, since you mentioned the, the Federal Reserve, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but the um, I, I saw something in the Wall Street Journal about um, Philip Jefferson, who is one of President <laughs> Biden's uh, nominees for the um Fed uh, to, to be on the Federal Reserve Board. Most of the time when we hear about the Federal Reserve, we hear about the Fed chair. We don't hear about other members of the board. How significant is it who sits on that board as opposed to who the Fed chair is? So certainly the Fed chair is the most important person on the board. You know, the Fed chair sets the agenda the Fed chair communicates with the public and advises the president. So by far, that's the most important role. But individual board members are very important, too. If you think about the board of governors for the Fed, that's seven people. So if you're appointed to the board, you're one out of seven. So if you can find some like-minded people on the board to go along with you, you, know, you can start to shift the direction of monetary policy. Because... The one thing Fed chairs don't want to have happen is for them to lose votes when the open market committee meets, which is the Board of Governors plus five of the 12 Federal Reserve District Bank presidents. So if you're a Fed chair and it looks like, well, the board is going in a different direction than you, well, you're going to start to pivot. So if there's a governor who thinks very differently than perhaps the consensus, 
you know, that could cause a shift in the direction for Fed policy. And I think that's important with what we're seeing with inflation. You know, will the Federal Reserve start letting interest rates rise or will the Federal Reserve start keep interest rates close to zero? Well, I think and the, Powell tried to do. And the argument there, Chris, is that uh, the economy is doing well enough to withstand some inflation. So it's no longer necessary for the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates uh, unnaturally low. Yeah, I think the problem with letting rates rise, though, is you're right. I think the I think the economy could probably handle rates rising, and I think it would be justified to let rates rise in the face of historic levels of inflation. By historic, I mean highest inflation in the last 40 years, so within my lifetime at least. Um, I think there's two concerns with letting rates rise. One, low interest rates is just have just fueled a run-up in asset prices stock market, uh, cryptocurrency, real estate in particular, that when rates are rock bottom at zero, if you buy a treasury bond, uh, you're going to lose purchasing power over the life of that bond because the interest rate the bond is paying is lower than the rate of inflation. So just buying treasuries and earning interest is bad. You can't make a certificate of deposit at a bank for the same reason. You're going to lose purchasing power because the CD pays a lower rate of interest than the rate of inflation. So if you want to see any sort of return, you have to pump money in the stock market, maybe some cryptocurrency or real estate. So you see those prices just explode. But if the Federal Reserve starts letting rates rise, you might see those asset prices start to come back down to earth. And I think the last thing the Fed wants is the stock market to correct and lose you know, 30 to 40 percent of its value. Or for the housing market to start to correct like we saw at the onset of the financial crisis a dozen years ago. I think one reason why cryptocurrency started to crater was because Powell tried to hint that rates might be rising in March when the after the open market committee met this, this past week. So when you have the market just being fueled by this crazy monetary policy, it's really hard to kind of undo that without causing a market crash. And also, if you just look at the, we always talk about the budget deficit, but I think it's kind of an underappreciated thing to talk about. Uh, you know, the federal government's borrowing, you know, a couple trillion dollars every single year. And it's able to do so at really low interest rates, which makes it really cheap to borrow that money. Um, but if the Federal Reserve lets rates start to rise, all of a sudden it becomes really expensive to borrow a couple trillion dollars a year to cover the budget deficit, let alone pay the interest cost on the existing national debt. Now, just as a real quick calculation, if the Federal Reserve ever let rates get back to where they were in the 1990s, um, interest payments on the debt go from being just over $300 billion a year for the government to about $2 trillion per year. So, you know, that would be more expensive than Social Security and Medicare combined. So it's kind of like, well, how do you let rates rise if doing so would essentially bankrupt the federal government given the size of the annual budget deficit and just the massive amount of debt they have to service every single year as a result of how catastrophically high the national debt is? Hey, Chris, I have to put a comma there and take a short break. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? Oh, absolutely. Great. My guest is uh, economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. We have some messages Hello as well. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Sterling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com Discoveries They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew and discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about the uh, economy with uh, economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, Flint. Chris, welcome back. Hey, great to be here, Tom. And thanks for sticking around. Oh, you're welcome. Um, we were talking about uh, about the Fed during the last segment, the uh, Federal Reserve Board and uh, the chairman and what's going on with uh, with interest rates. But what's happening with with jobs? Um, I remember you saying last month that uh, you know, we needed to wait and see the, the fourth quarter numbers to make uh, certain analysis. And uh, what... What have we learned since the fourth numbers, fourth uh, quarter numbers came out? Uh, it's just kind of more of the same. Um, job creation continues to be disappointing throughout uh, the recovery. You know, here we are, <clears throat> basically two years after the pandemic. It's hard to believe that if we fast forward one month, we're basically at the start of the shutdown that kicked all this off. Uh, but total employment right now in the U.S. economy remains lower than what it was in February 2020. So right now there's about 150 million people working in the economy, whereas before the pandemic we're at about 152.5 million people working in the economy. So there's still 2.5 million jobs short um, compared to where we were two years ago. Um, the job report now, Wait a minute, see, wait a minute. Uh, a shortage of 2.5 million jobs or 2.5 million people working? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess it's people working. Okay. Um, the, the data I'm thinking about is um, just total employees when you survey uh, right. businesses, how many employees do they have. So I suppose if people have one more job, um, you know, they could be counting for two of those jobs. But, yeah, there's still 2.5 million fewer jobs now compared to before COVID. So if you just kind of project out, what jobs would be had COVID not happened, well, there'd probably be about 156 million people working now. So we're, you know, we're, call it 4 million jobs under trend. Um, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better because when you see jobs reports numbers released that first Friday every month, there's numbers like, well, 200,000 new jobs were created. Well, that's what you'd expect if the economy was operating well, if things were good you know, not coming out of the worst recession since the Great Depression. So I can't, I think you can kind of see just everywhere in the economy where there's this um, where there's this lack of jobs. Really, the lack of jobs is from a shortage of workers. You know, there's jobs being posted. There's a record 11 million jobs, job openings posted right now, but there's just not people to fill them. You know, hence a lot of the jobs that were lost during the shutdown have, have not re- returned. So if you go to restaurants, you know, restaurant hours are shorter than before the pandemic. Lots of restaurants will just be closed on certain days of the week due to staffing issues. You know, service a lot of businesses is just really slow um, due to a lack of employees. So there's either a hiccup or multiple hiccups that are just preventing people from getting back to work to fill these open jobs. And total jobs now remains lower than what it was two years ago. And, and yet there are people that are looking for jobs and having a tough time finding them. There was, there was a, um, a thing I read by, uh, I think a guy, um, 
I think it had something to do with booking somebody that, that had written a book on my show. And, and one of the um, cases that he talks about is a pretty well-qualified applicant who had only had one interview in 274 attempts. Do you remember what the job um, I, that person was looking for was? Yeah, I, I don't. Um, for some reason, I'm thinking of it as a professional job, a programmer or something, but I, I'm not, I'm not really sure, Chris, so I, I, I can't speak to that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think a problem with, um, the professional white power, power type job is, I think there's a couple problems. One is <coughs> some of those jobs might've permanently disappeared due to the changes in the economy we've seen over the last two years. So I've heard podcasts, too, that express um, similar frustrations by people um, where people who were, say, event, event planners before the pandemic are having a tough time finding something now. And it seems like a paradox with how red hot the labor market is and employee, employers can't find employees. But if you're thinking about like an event planner, well, probably there are fewer events now compared to two years ago, um, thanks to COVID lingering around, uh, whatever there's a new variant events get canceled. There's always this uncertainty about what's coming down the road, you know, what's going to be after Omicron. So perhaps people who otherwise would host events are reluctant to do so. So that's called structural unemployment, that if there's like some fundamental change in the economy, you know, some jobs, some professions might just disappear for a long time. So that might be what's going on. Also, I think a problem with white collar jobs is the way that employers solicit resumes that if you upload your resume to some automated system, it's going to be a computer that scans it for certain keywords so that if your resume doesn't have those keywords, your resume gets put into the circular file. So it's like it's, the hiring process is overly optimized for white-collar work, and if you don't know exactly what keywords to put in your resume, your resume might not get looked at, and you might think that, well, corporations should change that given how short of workers they, they are, that they should kind of broaden their search. But corporations are very bureaucratic, and bureaucracies are slow to change. So perhaps that's what's going on, too, and that you're just kind of getting caught up into you know, the eighth circle of hell, which is the automated hiring process. With the recent market turmoil, um, would have some people thinking that uh, there's a problem with the stock market, but um, some of the experts are saying that it's um, it's it's really just some fluctuation as the economic recovery is beginning to mature. Um, is is it just a matter of, of uncertainty, as we've uh, talked before, because of Omicron and inflation and, uh, and also a slight decrease in December of consumer spending? I think the stock market is largely driven by monetary policy. Uh, like we talked about before the break, when interest rates are zero, right. people buy stocks because there's nowhere else where you could hope to earn any sort of return. So 
I think it's for that reason that you saw the market start to crater uh, right when Jerome Powell gave his press conference when he said, well, we're not raising rates right now, but when the open market committee meets in, in, in March, you expect rates to rise by maybe 50 basis points. So that's a signal that interest rates are going to start to go up in the future. And I think everyone kind of knows they are just because 7 8% inflation is just not sustainable. People will not tolerate inflation being this high for an extended period of time. To just watch your purchasing power fall by 7 to 8% every single year. So if rates start to rise, that's going to make stocks a less attractive investment, which is, I think, why you started to see like the Dow crater by um, 1,000 points right around that time. S&P um, also fell. The NASDAQ, I think, is down for the entire year. It's fallen by something like 20% or so for the year. Um, what's weird about the stock market, which I don't really have a handle on, is the Dow craters by a thousand points in a day, but then somehow later in the day it turns itself around as an end slightly positive, which that's weird. It's hard to explain that. Um, the explanation I saw, which I guess is a, is as good as any, is that there's a lot of automated buying algorithms out there where you know if the market dips by a particular percentage. Like the algorithms say, well, this is a good time to buy because you're supposed to buy low, sell high. And all that automated buying caused the market to rally and the end the day positive. Does that explain it? I don't know. Um, I think it might. Just because weird things like that have explained massive market movements before. Like if you go back to, I think it was Black Monday in 1987 where the Dow lost you know, nearly 50% of its value in the course of a day. It seemed like it was automatic selling mechanisms that caused the market to really start to crater. Where the market started to decrease, once it decreased by a certain percentage, um, automatic selling algorithms said, well, we got to sell right now to minimize our losses. So that triggers a wave of, of sales and caused the market to completely tank. So I think you just get weirdness in the sense that monetary policy drives so much of the market, plus just these automatic buying and selling rules driving the market as well which is a little disconcerting in the sense that you would hope it would just be market fundamentals that drive the market. You know, if corporations are having a good year, dividends are going to be up, that should cause prices to rise, whereas if a corporation is having a bad year, dividends will fall, that should cause the stock price to fall. And it just seems like all these other factors just completely swap, swamp out market fundamentals driving stock value. So if you're an investor who likes to invest based on fundamentals, which is what they tell you that you should be doing. Well, it's just kind of hard to know what to do. Well, also, um, Wall Street Journal is uh, reporting that the national debt exceeds uh, $30 trillion for the first time, pushed, uh, you know, in part by aid for small businesses, workers, and others, um, you know, with with various relief packages, and we've talked about that's pushing up the the national debt. But how does that thirty trillion dollars compare to GDP? Um, it's much, it's a lot higher than GDP. Um, GDP right now is probably closer to, to I would guess twenty one or twenty two trillion dollars. I could look it up right, real quickly. But yeah, debt to GDP ratio right now is. Well over 100%. Yeah, GDP right now is just a hair under $24 trillion. 
So the national debt currently is larger than gross domestic product, which means if the federal government seized every final good or service produced in a year and used it to try to pay off the national debt, uh, the federal government would come up about $6 trillion short. And we haven't seen debt to GDP be this high since World War II. Um, and the number I find pretty stunning is the fact that the federal government has spent more on COVID relief through the three rounds of stimulus packages that have been enacted um, than what the federal government spent to win World War II. Um, adjusted for inflation, World War II cost about $4 trillion to fight. Uh, right now, the federal government has spent well more than $5 trillion just with COVID, COVID relief. If you think about that $5 trillion in COVID relief, it's not like taxes went up by $5 trillion to pay for it or other spending was cut by $5 trillion. So what happened was is the federal government just borrowed it. So it got tacked onto the national debt, which is why the national debt has gone from, call it $22, $23 trillion before COVID to $30 trillion today. And the way the federal government borrows is it borrows by issuing and selling treasury bonds. And that's where the Federal Reserve steps in creates money to buy these new treasury bonds being issued, uh, which is why the money supply has doubled um, over the course of COVID and why interest rates remain low. It makes it really cheap for the federal government to borrow that money if the Federal Reserve is the one who's buying a lot of these new bonds being issued. Uh, but that translates into inflation that we're seeing right now, you know, seven to eight percent inflation and you're seeing inflation everywhere. Car prices, gas prices, grocery prices, of course, real estate um, prices have been through the roof. And the Federal Reserve is not even talking about inflation being transitory any longer. They tried saying that a year ago, but at some point, when something lasts well over a year, it stops being transitory and starts looking permanent. Uh, people tried to blame it on supply chain issues. So perhaps supply chain issues explain why car prices are rising faster than other prices, but even goods that don't face complicated international supply chains are facing inflation pressures. So really the inflation stems from all the federal spending being fueled by newly created money. So, so long as that continues, which it looks like it's going to continue, you know, I think inflation is going to be a problem and the national debt will continue to grow well past $30 trillion because the, the so-called infrastructure bill was signed into law. That's going to tack on another trillion. You know, who knows, maybe build back better will be resurrected from the grave. And if it is, if they could get Joe Manchin on board with something, that might tack on another $2 trillion to the national debt. But even aside from that, the Congressional Budget Office projects, you know, national budget deficits of $1 to $2 trillion, at least out over the next 10 years, which says, well, when we talk 10 years from now, um, we'll be talking about a $40 trillion national debt. What at would, some point... What would have to be done, Chris, to reduce the national debt um cut tax or, or increase taxes or cut government spending which there's zero political will to do so i mean i think you could do it would it be that difficult um, you'd have to stop with all these multi-trillion dollar covid relief bills i would certainly support doing that um, you'd have to probably raise <coughs> all taxes somewhat be catastrophic to the economy or perhaps undo the Trump tax cut or maybe up the marginal tax rate for upper income workers. How did it come um, down you know, after World War II? Um, <clears throat> well, the federal government was just a lot smaller back then <clears throat> because you have Social Security, 
Social Security wasn't as large as it, as it is now. And there's just a lot fewer retirees back in 1950 collecting Social Security compared to right now. You know, the baby boomers weren't retired back then. They were still babies. And there's no Medicare. You know, Medicare is not enacted until Lyndon Johnson's president 20 years later. Right. They have a much smaller federal government. And the federal government never really ran a budget surplus, but the yearly debt was pretty small. The economy just grew more rapidly than what the than what the um, national debt grew by, which caused the debt to GDP ratio to fall after World War II. So I, you don't, you wouldn't have to balance the budget, I suppose. You would just have to get the budget deficit to grow slower than what the economy grows by to get the debt-to-GDP ratio to come back down again. And even that, I think, would be a tall order for the federal government right now. What are the issues that have been getting your attention, Chris? Yeah, I worry quite a bit about the national debt like we're talking about because I don't think... $30 trillion is really that sustainable or pushing it up to $40 trillion is really that sustainable. At some point, the bond market's going to start to question the government's ability to repay that national debt or the bond market's going to start to worry that the federal government is just going to try to inflate the national debt away. That is, pay off the national debt by just printing money. And if, if inflation continues to be high, which I worry quite a bit about, all of a sudden, the bond market is going to react by demanding higher and higher interest rates to continue buying treasury bonds. So people focus on the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates, and certainly they could do that. But it doesn't just take the Federal Reserve to let rates rise. And if, if the bond market gets spooked by coming inflation, they're going to start demanding higher interest rates as compensation for that higher inflation. So... I think there's a real risk that inflation could cause some long-term damage to the economy, uh, both in terms of people's reduced purchasing power, people getting frustrated by seeing the price of necessities going up, and just inflation over the longer term causing interest rates to rise. So I think a, a problem with inflation is, is that people can't remember how bad it was back in the 1970s when inflation was last an issue. But if you go back to like the 1976 presidential election, even the 1980 presidential election, inflation was the one issue that people were talking about. Um, Milton Friedman was going around the country giving talks about economics, and probably the most frequent question he had was, what can we do about inflation? So I think it's underappreciated how destabilizing inflation could be for the broader economy and for society in general. That you know, it really does cause some societal unrest when you know, people wake up next year, you'd see their life savings by 10% less than what it bought a year ago. And labor costs are on the rise. What impact does that have on inflation? Um, that just fuels higher prices. Because if you're an employer, if you have a factory and you can't attract workers, uh, what do you do? Well, you just start raising wages until you can find people. So if you have to double wages to find workers, well, it's not like most businesses could just absorb much higher labor costs in the form of lower profits. So some of that cost will be passed on to consumers. So that's like the classic wage price spiral that people talked about in the 1970s and then promptly forgot because inflation got under control. That once prices start to rise, at some point, businesses have to offer higher wages to attract workers. Um, as compensation for those rising prices. 
So that when wages rise, that causes prices to rise even further. And then to attract, to keep attracting workers, you have to pay them even more, which causes prices to rise even further. You just get this wage price spiral spiraling out of control where, you know, inflation is running hot, you know, month to month, year to year. And really the only way to kill off the wage price spirals like we saw in the early 1980s where Paul Volcker lets interest rates rise to just astronomically high levels. If you wanted to buy a house back in the early 1980s, your mortgage rate might be 20%. And that caused a real nasty recession. You know, the 1981-82 recession was really, really bad. And I don't think anyone's really prepared for that to happen again. Um, if we got interest rates anywhere near where they were under Paul Volcker, the federal government would just go bankrupt for the interest costs on the national debt. You know, are we really prepared for another severe recession to break the wage price spiral after coming off the worst recession since COVID? Well, I don't think so. So it's kind of hard to see, you know, how the economy achieves the soft landing. That's the term everyone uses. How could the Federal Reserve soft land the economy after what we've had for the last two years. And maybe there's a way to do it, but I'm not so sure. And that really worries me because I think with how fractured society is, how low trust there, how much low trust there is in society, I'm not sure that society can handle things getting rough, rough again so soon after they were rough um, with COVID. Does that, does that seem likely? It's a more likely than I'd like to think, but it's hard to put odds on something like that happening because we're in such unprecedented territory. So I guess I would say I hope there's a soft landing, but I think there's a good a good risk. I don't know how high the risk is of a hard landing. And you think about COVID, um, that was really bad, of course, but COVID was only 10 years after the Great Recession, um, and that was really, really bad. So we faced two extremely severe recessions within the 10-year time period. Can we face a third if, if the Federal Reserve is unable to achieve a soft landing? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's a scary thought, to be sure. Um, Chris, uh, we just have about a minute and a half left. Any any final thoughts? Um uh, no, I mean, you asked me what I'm worried about, and I think that's what I'm worried about. A hard landing at some point in the future, because I just think that the present trends are just completely unsustainable. And I think that a problem right now is that people just forgot about inflation. You know, people got complacent. 40 years with no inflation, you thought inflation was a thing of the past, and it's not. Like, the fundamental drivers of inflation never changed. It's just that they weren't there for the last 40 years, and when they reemerged, it shouldn't have been a surprise that inflation reemerged as well. Well, Chris, thanks, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining me and the listeners this morning, and we'll see you next month. Sounds great. It's always great to be here, Tom. Take so care. Take care and enjoy the snow. All right. <laughs> I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills will buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. Nothing like a new limited power. Money, money, money. Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phrase. Money, money, money makes the world. Oh,
Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flipflip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. 
engineering and IT services at swiftland.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. It's 8 o'clock in Los Angeles. It's 9 o'clock in Denver. It's 10 o'clock in Chicago. In Baltimore, it's 642. <laughs> for the 11 o'clock report. First of all, the headlines. Welcome Wagon runs over Newcomer. Good Humor Man slays 10. Pen Pal stabs Pal with pen. Pediatrician dies of childhood disease. And Jacques Cousteau drowns in bathtub accident. We'll be back with full details in just a moment after this word from Cooley's Cigarettes. You know something, Bill? These cigarettes of mine, they taste like crap. <laughs> Say, Dan. <laughs> Crappy taste. Why don't you try the cool, refreshing taste of Coolies? Coolies, eh? You smoke them? Nope, found them in the subway toilet. <laughs> and now back to the news. History's 135th heart transplant operation was performed yesterday in New York City. One unusual note, the heart transplant took place in Central Park at midnight, and the donor's family was not consulted. Dr. Timothy Leary's brother, really Leary, today announced the formation of a new religion which teaches that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo. <laughs> Police today arrested Margaret Fulcrum, a 45-year-old unregistered nurse, and charged her with accepting collect obscene telephone calls. Famed television announcer Charlie the Tuna was found dead today of mercury poisoning. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. Good news from the Far East. No one was killed in Vietnam today. However, three people died of old age at the Paris Peace Talks. <laughs> and former French President Charles de Gaulle rose from the dead today just to show everyone he could really do it. Well, that's it from the news desk for the latest in sports. Here's Biff Barf. Good evening, sport fans. Biff Barf here in the Biff Barf Sportlight Spotlight, picking them up and barfing them right back at you. I call them the way I see them, and if I don't see them, I make them up. No games today. However, we do have a few late football scores still coming in from the far west. Guam Prep, 45, Marshall Islands, 14. Mindanao A&M, 27, Molokai, 10. Caltech, 14.5, MIT, three to the fourth power. 
William and Mary, six. Nick and Tony, 105. And here's a partial score, Stanford, 29. Well, that's it, kids. That's it from the scoreboard in the world of golf today in the Fats Domino Desert Classic. First round leader, Willie Water has it, had a birdie, two eagles, and a duck this afternoon. <laughs> Meanwhile, the favorite, Gary Fairway, was way behind, scoring a record 609 strokes on the front nine when he accidentally stepped aboard a bus to Minneapolis while playing a difficult lie from the highway. Well, that's it, sport fans. Join me tomorrow afternoon on the ever-widening world of sports when I'll be presenting the national two-man pall-bearing championships. And next week, I'll be a guest hunter on American Sportsman. Six of us are going to kill a rabbit. <laughs> now, with the latest in weather, here's Al Sleet, your hippy-dippy weatherman. Hey, 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 pasta! Hey, what you call your pasta? Al Sleet, your hippy-dippy weatherman, brought to you by Parsons Pest Control. Do you have termites, water bugs, and roaches? Parsons will get rid of the termites and water bugs and help you smoke the roaches. Present temperature is 68 degrees at the airport, which is stupid, because I don't know anyone who lives at the airport. Downtown, it's much hotter. Downtown's on fire, man. Now, if you'll take a look at our national weather map, you'll see that we don't have one. So try to picture last night's map in your mind. Remember all those lines and numbers. Weather was dominated by a large Canadian low which is not to be confused with a Mexican high. <laughs> Tonight's forecast, dark. <laughs> Continued mostly dark tonight. Turning to widely scattered light in the morning. <laughs> That's it from Al Slee. Don't forget, if you don't like the weather, move. <laughs> Thanks, Al. Always a great report from Al Sleet. I think we all know by now, Al's been into the mushrooms. <laughs> well, that just about wraps it up on the 7 o'clock report. Join us again tomorrow night at 9 for the 11 o'clock news. In the meantime, stay tuned for a brand new comedy series, Double Trouble, the story of Siamese twins joined at the lips. And the merry mix-ups that occur when one gets married and the other has root canal work the same day. Good night, all. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Well, I just had to laugh I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car That the lights had changed A crowd of people stood aside They seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of Just won the war A crowd of people turned away But I just had to look Having read the book I love to turn Across my head, I went upstairs and I had a cup. Looking up, I noticed I was late. Grabbed my coat, grabbed my hat, made the books and seconds flat. By my way upstairs and I had a smoke. Somebody spoke and I went into a dream.
<laughs> you pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.